0: Well, good morning, Hillcrest. So good to be with you in your living room or kitchen or wherever you're watching this today. Uh, And everyone who's joining us, if you've never watched a Hillcrest uh, video before, well, uh, it's your first time. We're so excited that you've joined us. Actually, thankful that I can join you today because I know that I'm in your living room or whatever space that you're in today. Today, I want to ask a really important question. I want to begin with a very important question, and that is, who is Jesus Who is Jesus? It's the kind of question that people have been asking for thousands of years, and they've been back and forth in different debates. Uh, But this question goes all the way back to 2,000 years ago when Jesus himself asked this question. Jesus was the one who is recorded in the Bible asking this question of the people closest to him. And I want to read you some of uh, how that went. Okay, here we go. Matthew chapter 16, 13 to 18 says, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son, of the Son of Man is? Now, I just want to stop and talk about where he is. Caesarea Philippi is just a little bit northern in the, if you look at the nation of Israel on a map, you could, it's, it's a little bit northern of that. And there's a very specific thing about that location and why it changes how we see this conversation. Caesarea Philippi was the whole home of different temples to different gods, Uh, most notably uh, ones that honored uh, Roman emperors. So Julius Caesar, Caesar Augustus, when they died, the Romans sort of added them to their pantheon of gods. So they were dead gods, but now they're gods. And so people would worship them. And so they're right in Caesarea Philippi where these temples are. And Jesus is with his disciples and he's saying, Who do you say that I am? Now, they're looking around and they're seeing that people have already made statements about who these Roman gods or these Roman emperors are. They're saying that they are now gods. But who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? So who do people say the Son of Man is? Now, notice where Jesus starts. Who do people say the Son of Man is? Right? So let me just say the Son of Man is a reference to prophecy. In the Old Testament, the, the, the big earlier part of the Bible, the book of Daniel has, talks about the Son of Man. And it's a, a prophecy that there's one coming who will be worshipped, but he'll be called the Son of Man. And that's sort of confusing for most people because you weren't supposed to worship people. In the Bible, you're supposed to only worship God. But there's one coming who will have authority, and he'll be reverenced, and he'll be worshipped, and he's called the Son of Man. Jesus is using that title of himself. And who do people say the Son of Man is? So he's already self-projecting the answer a little bit uh, in his question. So what are people saying about me? What are, what are the conflicting views? What are the popular theories? What's the word on the street? How do people from different walks view Jesus? How do the rich view Jesus? How do the poor view Jesus? How do men view Jesus? How, does, how do women view Jesus? Are they, is that different? What about the Jews? How do they view Jesus? How do the Samaritans view Jesus? I mean, these are, this is the era before big data, right? There's no big data. There's no Google. You can't just ask, who is Jesus, and see all the answers that come up. Back then, all you had was your buddies. And so you'd ask your buddies, and they'd tell you what their family said, or what their buddies said, or what their co said, or what their classmates said. That's all you had, and so you went to them to get your research so Jesus is polling his friends, and they are sharing what others have said. Read what others have said. So they replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. Okay, so people have said, you know, different things in Jesus' day about who Jesus was. So when, when people say today, or when people try to answer this question today, who is Jesus, what do they say? I think a common one that you hear is that, well, I don't know if Jesus was God, but he was a good teacher, or he was a good man, or he was a good leader, uh, or different things like that. Now, I, whenever I hear someone say that, I, in, something inside of me says, really? Really? I mean, you have to put yourself into their shoes for, for my, my train of thought to make sense. If I, was, if I had a buddy, and my buddy told me, I'm God, I'm the creator of the universe. I'm the long-awaited, prophesied Messiah. I'm the savior of all humankind. Well, that would be hard for me to believe. That would be really hard for me to believe. Well, you know, there's really only three ways you could probably take it. One, your buddy's lying. And so what would you say to your buddy? You'd say, stop it. Like, stop saying that. That's, That's not true. You know it's not true. I know it's not true. Everyone knows it's not true. It's a lie. Stop lying. The other thing is maybe um, they're just deluded, right? Maybe they've got something going on in their head and things aren't all right. And so you'd say, hey, can I help you? Can I get you some help? Can I get you some counseling? Maybe you need a medication. Maybe you need to see a doctor. But let's get you some help. But the third option is very intriguing. What if what your buddy is saying is true? Now, Now, how can that be? How can that be? Um, I'm the author of the books of Narnia, all those, you know, Lion, the Witch in the Wardrobe and all those different ones, C.S. Lewis, he he made it really simple for us. He said, when it comes to Jesus, you've really only got three options. He's either a liar, or he's a lunatic, or he could be the Lord. He could be God. Because when someone says they're God, how do you take them? Are they lying? Are they deluded? Are they a lunatic? Or is it true? Could it be true? So, what would it take you to believe that your buddy who tells you that they're God is telling the truth? For me, it would take mountains of evidence. It would take an extraordinary amount of evidence. And that's the, the really interesting thing about reading the Bible and the, and the accounts of the followers of Jesus is that they testify to the fact that they saw the mountains of evidence. They say, we believe. We came to believe. In fact, maybe early on they thought, well, Jesus is an extraordinary man. But then as they went on, they came to see, man, he is more than an extraordinary man. He is, maybe he is who he claims to be. Maybe he is the Son of God. So they had all these different things they look at. I won't go through all the evidence, but obviously how he lived, some of the miracles he performed would have spoke to that. How he died and fulfilled prophecy through his death. I mean, it's hard to fulfill prophecies, especially so many of them. And then finally, the resurrection, Jesus coming back to life. These are all the things that Jesus' followers pointed to. They pointed to the fact that we had ample Evidence that convinced us that the one that we walked with, we ate with, uh, we laughed with, that we went out on boat trips with, we went fishing with, that one was God. And that's an extraordinary claim. So you might say, well, maybe they just said he was God because of some reason. They had an ulterior motive. Maybe they wanted to get rich off this plan. Maybe they wanted to become powerful or famous or just they wanted attention. But if you think about it, all of these followers kept their story until their deaths. So I'm, I'm saying if you said, hey, let's for some benefit to ourselves, let's say our buddy is God. And then later on in life, someone says, if you don't deny this, we'll crucify you or we'll cut off your head or you'll be drawn and quartered or you'll be boiled in oil. About that point, I'd be saying, you know what? I don't see the benefit I'm getting out of this. I think I'm going to come clean. Okay, Can I get out of that what you just threatened me with? Uh, Okay, I made it up. I made it up. But they didn't. They stuck with this story and they died for it. And and history and and, uh, tradition tells us that each one of the disciples of Jesus, with maybe the exception of John, actually were martyred for this belief. They believed it and were convinced of it to their death. So back to... Jesus questions, who do men say that I am? Who do people say that I am? But then Jesus gets personal. He says, who do you say that I am? I mean, you can talk all day about what other people think of who Jesus is. But what matters is, who do you think Jesus is? And who do I think Jesus is? It's a big jump from people are saying this, people are saying that, to I think this. I believe this. This is who I think Jesus is. So, Simon was the one who answered the question. I don't know. The Bible doesn't record if there's a a big long pause where they're, they're all looking at each other and saying, What about you? Do you believe? Do you think this is true? Do you think he could be who it seems like he might be? But it's that Simon. Suddenly, something rises up within Simon, and he makes this declaration. He says, I think you're the Messiah, the Son of God. You are, no, not I think. He says, you are the Messiah, the Son of God. And, and right away, Jesus affirms this. Now, Jesus doesn't deny this. Jesus affirms this. He says, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. Uh, I'll add a little tidbit to that. He says, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Remember, we're standing in close proximity to the the temples of dead gods, of dead men, who now are venerated as gods, as that was the practice in the Roman worship. So he's saying, you are the son, not of dead gods, but you are the son of the living God. Very interesting. I'll just throw that in for free. You are the Messiah, the son of the living God, and he says, Simon, this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. Wow. So, Peter, or Simon, takes the leap. You know that the Bible teaches that if you find out who Jesus is, you'll find out who you are too? You know that? In fact, that's here, right here. It's funny that Jesus not only affirms The answer that Simon gives, but then he goes on to change Simon's name. Now, this shows up in the Bible in many different people. Uh, Different people had their names changed. Jacob was changed to Israel. Abram was changed to Abraham. You know, different people. And those were significant. All those name changes. You know, when your name is changed, it's significant. It means that the future that you maybe imagined for yourself when you had your old name is changed there's something about your future that's going to be dramatically different. And when you find out who Jesus is, then the thing that happens is you start to find out who you are. And that's what happened for Simon, who Jesus changed his name in that moment to Peter. And says, "I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it." So Peter was born to fish, he thought. He was born in probably a fishing family as a fisherman. Learned from his dad and that's what he did. If you ask Peter, who are you? I'm a fisherman. Okay. But Jesus changed the trajectory of his life. In fact, Jesus had a plan long before Peter was born that he would lead. That he would lead many people into starting a worldwide movement of changing people's lives by embracing Jesus as God. And so, when you discover who Jesus is, then you'll start to discover more about who you are and who you were created to to be, and also what you were created to do. All right, so let me read you a a few more verses. Matthew 16 and verse 21. It says, from that time on, Jesus began to explain to his, his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and then he must be killed, and on the third day be raised from life. Raised to life. <laughs> so, who Jesus is not only determines who we are and what we might do; it also determines what who Jesus. It's it, once Jesus is declared who he is, it determines what he must do, and that's what he declares right now. He says to his disciples, he must go to Jerusalem. I must go to Jerusalem. Because I'm the son of God, there are expectations. There are things I must do. There are things that must be done. I must go there. I must be killed. And I must be raised to life. So who Jesus is even defines what Jesus must do. Now back to you. You're still wondering a little bit, maybe. I don't know about who Jesus is. But why is it so important that you come to a conclusion about who jesus is you know who you say he is doesn't actually change who he actually is sometimes we just think that we just think well my subjective feeling about someone is uh, that someone is like this like you might say you feel that i am alex trebek but that doesn't mean i can get you onto jeopardy it doesn't mean that in fact real life We'll, we'll settle in real quick, and you'll know, oh, that's not true. You might think, I think, I think you're just, uh, Justin Bieber. Well, that doesn't mean I can hit the high notes when we sing songs, uh, you know, silly love songs or something like that. The reality comes home when we realize who someone really is. And out of that comes what you can expect from that person. So you, you might have expectations. You say, well, I think Steve can help me with uh, fixing my car. Well, I can maybe help you fix your taxes, but your car, no, I can't actually. I'm not very skilled in that. I don't have much experience. What about expecting what kind of advice I could give? You might say, well, I think think Steve could give me a lot of uh, legal advice. Well, no, I can't. I have very little expertise in that area, but I might be able to give you marriage advice. I've helped a lot of couples with that. So knowing who a person is helps you know what you can expect, right? If you really know me well, you'll even know how much money I could borrow you. Well, if you don't know that, you'd just be guessing. What can we expect from Jesus? It all comes down to who he is. What is reasonable to expect from him? Normally, you you don't expect much from a man who lived 2,000 years ago. But what if he was more than just a man What if he was more than just a man who lived 2,000 years ago? Jesus himself said he was more than that. Who did Jesus say he was? He said he was the son of God. He said he was the great I am. That's out of the story of Moses. You can get that. Or he he said he was one with the father, the son of God, the son of man. He said he was divine. Now, about a year ago, almost to the the week, I preached the message on the top 10 ways Jesus said that he was God. And you can listen to that in our podcast. Go back to March 24th, 2019. And you can just listen to my favorite top 10 list of ways that Jesus said clearly that he was God. Because some people debate that. They say, oh, Jesus never said he was God. Once you listen to that message, I think you'll be convinced that he made it absolutely clear that he was God. So Jesus said that he was God. And I love the ways he says he's God. Sometimes he says it through re- referencing prophecy. Sometimes he says it through metaphor. If you look, read in the book of John, you'll find at least seven different ones where he says things like, I'm the bread of life. I am the door. I am the way. I am the gate. I am the... All these different things that are like metaphors. And so you have these word pictures that, that sort of show you how he's God and what, and, and what him being God really means for our lives. And so those are amazing. I want to share with you one today that I think just really caught my attention. In our church, we've been reading through a reading plan called The Story, and as we're reading through that reading plan this week, I just hit on these verses, and they came alive to me in a really neat way. So this is a time when Jesus said he was God, but in a very unique way, and it's from the story about when Jesus went camping. So everybody knows that story, when Jesus went camping, and so, oh, you don't? Oh, okay, well, let me tell you about it. The Israelites had festivals. They would have to go to Jerusalem three times a year for significant festivals. And one of them was the festival, festival of tabernacles. The festival of tabernacles. Or another way to say it is the festival of booths. But the way I like to say it is the festival of living in tents. Because that's basically what happened. You would go down to Jerusalem and you set up a booth for yourself. And in fact, people still practice this to this very day. And so the booth is, uh, the ones I've seen are more square with a, with, a, with a square top roof, but they're not very big. So if right now you're feeling a little claustrophobic being with your family all the time, you know, if you're, if you're sort of self-isolating and quarantined or something like that, imagine living in a tent, a very small tent with them. Now, I guess it's Israel, and it's warmer weather, so you could just tell them to go outside and play with a cactus or something. But here, in this, this was the thing they did every year. Observant Jews would go down to Jerusalem, and they would live in these tents, this uh, festival of tents, this festival of tabernacles. And they're going through the days, reminiscing when the people of Israel lived in the desert, and... It says here, let me just read it to you out of John 7, 37. Oh, first I'll say, while this is happening, the talk of the festival is Jesus. People are debating the very question that we're talking about this morning. Who is Jesus? Is he the Messiah? But he's supposed to come from a certain town to do that. That's a lot of the debate that's happening. And what about these miracles? And, but he definitely doesn't teach like other people. I mean, other people, they always refer to someone else's authority. He always refers to his own. Well, that's very different. Who is Jesus? is the talk of the festival. And then Jesus does something absolutely remarkable, and let me read it to you. It says, On the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, Let anyone who's thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as Scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. Can you imagine that? All these families there, all these people there, just people milling about, everybody in their little tent village that they've erected in Jerusalem. And then Jesus stands up and he says, at this pinnacle moment when people are thinking about how God has provided the thing to slake their thirst, to to satisfy their parchedness in the desert, Jesus stands up and says this amazing thing, let anyone who's thirsty come to me and drink. Well, I mean, this—if this is anything, if this is a reference to being like God, to be God, the provider, the one who can satisfy your thirst. Now, there's a lot of thirsts that we have in our lives. There's a lot of thirsts. I think of some of the ones that that we we deal with as human beings on a regular basis. Uh, we we deal with despair. That's a thirst people have in their lives. They they people get hopeless. Uh, if you look at suicide rates in our, in our country, you see that there are people who lose hope and they have despair. It's like they need something to satisfy that thirst. Uh, think about emptiness. People are looking for meaning. They're looking for something, but they don't know what it is. I believe they're searching for God, but they don't know they're searching for God. And so they're looking for meaning, but they're experiencing emptiness, and it's a thirst in their lives. What about fear? That's... Uh, Sometimes when everything's hunky-dory, people are still afraid. Now, we're living in a season where I think fear is a little bit more heightened than usual. And there's, there's reasons for uh, that there are some things that feel like a threat in our lives at this, at this point of time. But sometimes that fear is just, you don't, can't put your finger on it. Why is it there? Why am I so afraid? It's a thirst in our lives that we long to be satisfied what about loneliness? The thirst of loneliness. Sometimes we just feel deserted. Even when we're with others. You might be with your family and you might feel very alone. You might be uh, in other seasons of life. You might have community all around you and still feel a loneliness. And I believe that there's a loneliness that you feel deeply that can only be filled by God. It's a loneliness for God himself. One more thirst. The thirst of guilt. 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 Many people have guilt. They might not know where the guilt comes from, but they experience it. I remember I was listening just earlier this week to an old recorded message by an old preacher by the name of Billy Graham. You might know who he is. And Billy Graham was saying how he had gone to London and he was talking to one of the top doctors who oversaw the medical community in London. And he got talking to him and the doctor started talking about guilt. And he said, you know what? In all the mental asylums we have, In all the facilities we have to help people in our nation. He says, I think 50% of those people could go home today if they knew how to deal with their guilt. Wow. Guilt is a big thing. Guilt is a big thirst in the lives of people. What hope is there for those who are consumed with guilt? Now, how do we get guilt? I think we get guilt. I know for me, when I cross a line that I had predetermined I would never cross, I feel guilt. I mean, I can feel guilt in a lot of areas, but those are the ones that really go deep. If you talk about really significant uh, dealing with guilt. So when we cross lines that we ourselves thought nobody should cross, is there any hope for us? God offers his forgiveness to quench the thirst of guilt in our lives. You say, well, okay, that sounds nice. Sometimes we think of God's forgiveness as sort of a light and easy thing. But I, but I can't forgive myself. The guilt doesn't go away because I can't forgive ourselves. And one of the, I think the reasons why we can't forgive ourselves is that we think that our moral standard is higher than God's. We think that uh, for him to forgive us, no big deal. He sort of lets a lot of stuff slide. But me, I've got a higher standard, so I can't forgive myself. But that's not true. God does not treat wrongdoing in a light way. If God thought of the things that we do wrong in a light way, Jesus would never have had to go to the cross and bear the sins of you and me. It's very clear that God thinks that our wrongdoing is very serious. But not only does he think it's very serious, he provides the way for it to be dealt with. He doesn't leave us in guilt and shame, but he actually provides the way for our sin or our selfishness to be forgiven. And our guilt and shame to be removed. So if you are feeling like, well, I can't forgive myself. Oh, I could take God's forgiveness. I'll receive that. It's easy. You're saying that your judgment matters more than God's judgment. And that's probably why guilt and shame remains in your life. Because it's your own heart that's condemning you. So you've got to make a decision. Is your own heart greater than God or is God greater than your own heart? The scripture says the latter, that God is greater than your own self-condemning heart. And that when God forgives you, that that begins the process. That begins when you embrace the forgiveness of God, you embrace the fact, I, I'm a sinful person, I need the forgiveness of God, you embrace it and you experience it, it changes the game when it comes to guilt. If you come to accept that God is the ultimate judge and his judgment matters more than your own, you'll find forgiveness and freedom. From guilt in your life. But as long as you believe that your judgment is what is ultimate, you'll either try hard to justify your wrong actions and say, well, that wasn't bad because of this reason, or that wasn't bad because of this reason, or that wasn't bad because you have to try to make yourself into a good person for your own sake, or you'll just struggle with the guilt over the wrong actions. Here's my, um, here's my hot tip. And I just sort of came to it in the last few years. If you're just starting out on your journey with encountering God, uh, I would say embrace this as fast as you can. I've stopped thinking of myself as a good person. And I've replaced that with thinking of myself as a forgiven person. That has actually changed the game for me. It's radically changed the game for how I deal with guilt in my life. I don't, uh, I don't try to justify everything I've done wrong but I recognize that God offers his, his forgiveness to me, and I've received it, and I've embraced it. And so the things that used to cause me the greatest guilt in my life now have become the cause of my greatest gratitude. And that's a crazy thought maybe to get your head around. But those things where you once caused you shame and caused you to hide and caused you to put that in the closet, and that'll be a secret that I'll never tell anybody, and I'll never reveal to anyone, and I for sure won't talk to God about it, because I'd feel so much shame. suddenly changes. You can bring all those things out into the open. You, you can actually be who you are, because once you encounter God's grace, you realize that who you are, that person can be loved. You can be fully known and fully loved. And God offers that to you today. And He offers that through His forgiveness and through Jesus, the Son of God. So all of these thirsts, despair, emptiness, fear, and guilt, Jesus stands up to say, uh, come to me if you're thirsty. If you're experiencing the thirsts of all in all these areas of your life, you know something's not right. Something's, you feel that emptiness, you feel like something's missing. Come to me, I'll quench it. I'll quench it. I think this is one of, the, one of the clearest ways. It stood out to me so clear. Only God could say this. This isn't what a man says. This isn't what a woman says. This isn't what a person says, that I'll quench someone else's thirst. Nobody uh, should ever have that kind of weight put on them. But God could have that weight put on him, And Jesus declared that he would do that. I love that the second part of that line that Jesus said. He said, let anyone who's thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within me. So if Jesus is the son of God, he can quench your thirst. But not only that, it gets even better. If Jesus is the son of God, he can not only quench your thirst, but he can make you a thirst quencher. He can make you so that rivers of living water flow out of you. Not because you're just drumming it up, trying to be a good person, encouraging and nice and all those things, but because you're actually receiving from God his pure love, the purest love you've ever known, and then you're able to pass that on. So God, if Jesus is the Son of God, he can quench your thirst, but he can also make you a thirst quencher. And that's what he desires to do. So what's the response to this? What's the response to Jesus' claim to be God? What's the the way that we respond? Jesus had a simple invitation to people. It was the invitation he made to Simon before he changed his name to be Peter. All of his disciples, he just said, follow me. Follow me. Come observe what I do. Come observe who I am so that you'll have an example but so that you'll have faith. Your your faith will grow in who I am. Everything Jesus did, it was for those two reasons. One, we'd have an example. Oh, Jesus healed, or Jesus loved, or Jesus served, or Jesus sacrificed. Jesus gave of himself. Jesus died for others. Wow, I get it. I see what the example is. But the flip side of that is that so that we would trust him. We would trust him. And people all over the world have come to that point of trusting them. They've said, Who is this Jesus? Well, he's the one I'm trusting. I'm trusting for his leadership in this life, but I'm also trusting him with my eternity. I'm trusting him with my forever. I'm trusting him for whatever comes after death. I am trusting him. And the ones that followed Jesus, the ones who walked with him, the ones who were eyewitnesses of his glory, that's what it says in Scripture, they did. They trusted him. They came to trust in him. And I think that invitation is, is for us today. Let me read you one last little bit of scripture, and then I want to close. It's an encounter Jesus has with a Samaritan woman. And you're not supposed to, in those days, Some Jewish men didn't talk to Samaritan women. That's just the context. But I'm going to read you just a couple verses. It's, they're at a well in Samaria, and Jesus asks for a drink. And then this is what it says, John 4. And uh, 9 and 10. The the Samaritan woman said to him, You're a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. That's just how it was back then. It wasn't good. It was just the reality. And this is Jesus' answer. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. I don't want you to miss this. This is really important. I'm going to tell you, I resonate with these words so deeply, personally. I've experienced God coming into the thirsts of my life and quenching them. And it's not just, I, I, I get thirsty again. I get insecure. I get fearful. Despair hits. All sorts of things. Uh, even this week, I had a moment where I was just sort of like, sort of fear and anxiety was dominating. And I had to pull back and go, whoa, 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 whoa. I just need to connect with Jesus again. I just need to spend some time with Jesus. I need to pray. I want to talk to Jesus. And you know what? He began to quench those things inside of me that were were parched. And he wants to quench the things inside of your life as well. He does. And I want to just say, just like Jesus said to the Samaritan woman, if you knew, oh boy, if I could explain it to you better, I just have the feebleness of my explanation and my words this morning. But what I'd love to do is I'd love to sort of just place you into some of my life experiences and say, here I was hopeless. Here I was guilty. Here I was in despair. Here I was fearful. And Jesus quenched that thirst in my life. And he keeps on quenching it. If you knew, you'd be begging Jesus, to give you what he has for you. How do you get it? Jesus said, follow me. Follow me. Now he made it clear with his disciples. He goes on to say, hey, you're going to have to deny yourself. Take up your cross. This isn't going to be a cakewalk. In fact, it might be the most challenging thing you ever did. But if you... Do this. You're going to find yourself. Some people think, you're going to lose yourself if you follow Jesus. No, no, no. You're going to find yourself. You're going to find out what you were made for. You're going to find out the destiny that's on your life. You're going to find out that there is a purpose for you being born and for you living. And you're going to find it in relationship with Jesus. And if you knew that experientially now, you'd already be saying, give me this. Jesus, give me living water. Quench my thirst. Change my life remove my guilt forgive my sin lead on i want to follow you and i want to lead you today in just a prayer that's how we're going to close together it's just a prayer of commitment It's a prayer you could pray any day but for you this might be the day the day of commitment the first day where you take that step with jesus and so i'm just gonna i'm gonna read it real slow to you and it doesn't the words are not magical It's what's going on in your heart towards God. If you're saying yes to him, I want to follow. I want uh, you to lead. I want to give you my entire life. Thank you that you'll take every bit of it and you won't shy away from my dark corners or my hidden things, but that you want to come into every area of of my life. Let's pray. You can just repeat this on your own, under your breath or out loud in your home, and God will hear you. Dear Father... Thank you that you love me and sent Jesus to die on the cross for my sin. I put my trust in Jesus as my Lord and Savior. Help me live a life that honors you by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.